Welcome to the Waiting Room Revolution. Today we have our friend and colleague, Elizabeth Doherty, on the show. She's a social worker who works in the community supporting patients and families dealing with serious illness and grief. We talk about the role of social work in palliative care, how to create space for important conversations, and the power of silence. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. So welcome to the podcast, Elizabeth. Thank you both so much. I'm so happy to be here. We're so happy you're here. And we're so happy to tell everyone who's listening that you're not just a guest, but you're one of our colleagues here uh, <laughs> in Ontario. Um, and that we work together. So this is so special to have a friend and a colleague on our podcast today. Elizabeth, you're a social worker, but you didn't start working with patients and families in the community. So how did your career evolve? So I was actually in the emergency department for a number of years through internships and volunteer roles and crisis intervention. And I would see so many families land and emerge, just unanswered questions facing complex illness. And I just thought, you know, where could I go from there? So I pivoted from that to general internal medicine. And I very quickly saw so many people just being confronted with these diagnoses, but very quickly having to move on. Um, you know, into the next space or place and not a lot of space for psychosocial support, certainly for the person, let alone for the family. So when I moved from GAM or general internal medicine to psychosocial oncology at the cancer center, it was the same thing, but more of it. And it was all around advanced cancer, certainly comorbidities as well, but advanced cancer. So it was really curious for me to see families from time of diagnosis, especially with advanced disease, so many questions and just not enough conversations. Um, so luckily there were two very generous families that um, offered the donations to start the palliative care program. So I was the first social worker appointed and dedicated to that palliative care role to partly, well, really to help develop the program with, in collaboration with my interprofessional colleagues and grow the team. So I was dedicated as the uh, inpatient palliative co uh, social worker on an inpatient unit, acute palliative care unit, we had 12 beds. And then also the palliative outpatient clinics as well. Um, so it was an extraordinary experience, truly. Um, I'm grateful for every moment, every family, every person I had the opportunity to sit with and learn from and be present with. You know, you'll have to correct me, but um, when I think of uh, the role of a social worker, uh, you know, on any team in the hospital, it's exactly what you're describing, um, which is, you know, to provide that support, counseling, et cetera. But all too often, my experience has been that social workers end up in like roles like um, discharge planning and um, finding um, financial support for people, a lot of paperwork and applications. And mm -hmm. um, many have said to me, that's not what they thought they were getting into when they went into social work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Indeed, Sammy. Yeah. And I think certainly in general internal medicine, there was more of a push for that because of the pressure for length of stay. It was very much trying to move people through the system onto the next space or place they needed to be. Not a lot of space for psychosocial support. So for me, that's why it was really imperative for me to pursue something where I could really offer spaces and places to connect, to offer psychosocial support, certainly to speak to all of the other needs and concerns, you know, practical mm -hmm. issues, um, you know, whether that's 
income support, food security, transportation, whatever it might be, but certainly first and foremost for me, and I'm grateful to have really advocated for those opportunities to foster yeah. those psychosocial supports and services from time of diagnosis mm-hmm. all the way through to end of life mm-hmm. and certainly then into bereavement. So tell us, why did you pivot from the cancer center and hospital to your own community-based practice? So with my community-based private practice, and it's interesting, I started it in August of 2015. It was really important to me to create a virtual practice because I saw so many folks just to travel to the hospital, regardless of how long that was. It was just the travel itself was really tough on folks because of their symptoms, their energy. I mean, also factoring the time and energy it takes to get into a hospital, pay for parking, navigating the hospital itself and the physical space, let alone the emotional impact for everybody as they're going through this. So I started my virtual practice in 2015. And it was telephone and online support. And then I also was making home visits, actually, Sammy, speaking to your heart and soul (laughs) in the community. And then home was wherever people, right? (laughs) So home for me was wherever people were, whether that was home uh, in the community, whether that was long-term care, hospital or hospice, it was just, I wanted to go where people were. But for me, it was really so many people I was seeing were saying, you know, I don't know how to tell my kids or my partner about the diagnosis or the progression or, you know, how to talk about dying. Um, so that's really the majority of what I focus on. And I still have that broad scope of, you know, if there's practical resources I can offer, I always do. But more of it is about those, those conversations about, you know, what does this mean for you and, and how can I support those that mean most to you? So you're helping people connect the dots and make meaning from their experiences I guess one of the things that has been an aha moment for me as we've interviewed other people is that even if they get information, they don't really know how to contextualize it, patients and families. Um, It's still just a bunch of dots without a line or a thread woven through them. And what they don't know to ask for is the meaning of it. So patients and families are getting a little bit better at asking for things, but not the, well, you know, how do I make sense of that in the context of where I'm at? So would you say that a lot of what you do is help them make meaning? Uh, Sammy, it's, it's on so many layers. It's so contextual, right? I think so much of it is I don't understand, or I didn't have time to ask questions, or I have multiple Mm -hmm. specialists I don't know who to go to, or they're so busy, I don't want to bother them. Um, Mm -hmm. I think for so many people, or, you know, the number of people I've spoken to as well that said, well, I'm receiving treatment. When I ask folks, you know, can you tell me what you understand about your diagnosis? And they say, well, I'm receiving treatment. When I kind of ask, you know, okay, so can you tell me more about what the goals are, you know, for your treatment? And and oftentimes it's just like, I don't know. I just know I'm receiving treatment. Right. So I think a lot of it is. One second. Does that not shock you? No, just like it probably doesn't anymore, but come on that people say, oh, well, I'm getting that they don't know. Don't you feel so sad? Yeah. And I can honestly say it's, it's every day, Sammy and Sian, where it's the advocacy piece, it's demystifying and it's kind of deconstructing, you know, what have you heard? What do you understand? And how can we fill in the pieces? You know, who do we go to? And I think, you know, that's honestly, those connections are the biggest part of my job all day, every day is just exploring that further. And, you know, I often, I refer to the three W's a lot when I'm even talking to, you know, parents and kids, because just mm-hmm. as conversation openers, and I refer to them as, you know, wonder, you know, what are you wondering about getting to questions they have about the diagnosis, the treatment, what to expect, 
The second is worry, right? Because we know people have fears about their experience. So whether those are fears that are grounded or not, if we don't get to explore them with folks, mm-hmm. you know, they carry them in isolation. So getting to the bottom of that, but also wish, right? So what are you hoping for? So certainly not only is that those are conversations I explore together with families, mm-hmm. a lot of it is with the person themselves, right? Trying to garner an understanding of what's happening for them and mm-hmm. what they can go to and what the next steps are. Honestly, I think demystifying it and putting those pieces together mm-hmm. are such a big part of the advocacy role that we all play, right? Mm-hmm. You've talked about what we call in our podcasts the idea of zooming out or understanding the big picture of the illness and also customize your order, which is about infusing patients and families' values into their decision-making and addressing their fears. So I'd be curious to know your thoughts about our seven skills in season one and our podcast in general. Well, as you know, I already said, longtime fan, first time caller. Uh, as soon as I think you both know, as soon as I saw your podcast and highlighting those keys, I thought it gave language to the experience that so many have, right? And people don't know what they don't know. I mean, I know we have an inside view from our personal and professional experiences, right? That sets us up in a way that many people don't know what to ask or who to speak to or how to navigate it. You know, those keys, I think for both of you, highlighting that is just, it's really sets the stage for folks to ask questions and to feel empowered in their own experience, right? Um, So many people I know have just kind of said, well, is it okay to ask those questions? Or I'm worried they don't have time because, you know, I see how busy everybody is. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just giving name to, you know, what does this mean for you? Um, And where do we go from here? So the keys that you've highlighted, both of you, I think it's so essential because I think people are always surprised, right? When someone is so vulnerable stepping into the healthcare system, that this isn't all laid out for them and that they have to advocate so much for themselves to try and open up those doors, those conversations, Mm -hmm. those spaces and places for them and the people they love. Yeah, it's crazy how hard patients and families have to work (laughs) to understand what's going on with their own body. It's Mm -hmm. really nuts. Mm-hmm. When you talk about what you do, you can't believe it, Elizabeth, you and I probably do almost the exact same thing mm-hmm. just in, you know, different um, roles, because mm-hmm. when you said what you do, mm-hmm. it's exactly what I do. You probably mm-hmm. do it much better than, than mm-hmm. I do. But mm-hmm. I thought when I graduated, I was going to be this like really, you know, hardcore medical doctor, you know, and I was, you know, it was hardcore symptoms and mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever else I thought I was doing. Um, but it's the stuff that you're talking about. That is mm-hmm. what I do every day, just like you. So we're doing the mm-hmm. same thing because yeah. that's what's needed. Right. Well, and I think to be fair, I am not titrating opioids at all, <laughs> Sammy, but, <laughs> uh, and, and for anyone that's not following Sammy on social media, I highly recommend both Instagram and Twitter, because you are a beautiful writer, but it's truly giving voice to this experience, Sammy, right? How we show up for folks and just exploring what healing means to them, even in the absence of a cure, right? And one of the slides I use a lot in some of the teachings and presentations I do is this elephant sitting in the middle of a room and the elephant says, I'm right here, but you know, like nobody's noticing me. Mm. And so I think a lot of it is just creating those spaces, like you said, and in your beautiful writing, like you're a great writer, by the way, as well, Sammy, but oh, I think, I think it's, <laughs> I'm just saying, <laughs> but you know, you really name and acknowledge how empowering and impactful these conversations are with people. And sometimes we're the first person to sit and hold that space with them. Right. And that means everything. Yeah. So true. Can you talk a little bit about how you're in your own sort of work, 
how much of your time is spent focusing on, you know, supporting the patient versus the understanding for the family? And mm -hmm. is that, how similar or different is that? Um, I think it's really rare that I just offer individual counseling, or at least if I'm meeting with one person. And again, so most of what I'm doing now throughout the pandemic is virtual, in fact, with folks across Ontario. Um, so if I'm speaking to someone individually, right, it's still the question of how it translates and impacts their family, whether it's from diagnosis through to bereavement. But a lot of what I offer are family sessions because it's just even with navigating some of those conversations with someone, it still might be, can you open that space for us? You know, like, I, I think I know what to say or how to say it, but if you could open that space for us. So exploring that and creating that space is a big part of what I do. So I think, you know, because, you know, no one's in isolation, right? I mean, and that's no pun intended. Of course, we've all been isolated, which adds a whole other layer of complexity, mm -hmm. but, and a whole other layer of loss and grief. Uh, because of the pandemic. But all that to say is I think every conversation I have is first, can you tell me about what family means to you? Because I know so many people, their family, it's not anyone they're biologically connected to or related to, but people found family, right? They feel loved and supported by. So I think an element of my work, my role is always around, you know, what does family mean to you and, and how, you know, how can we best support them? So even if it's an individual session, it's still, you know, exploring that aspect. Um, yeah. Elizabeth, I'm curious, have you, what proportion of people that you invite into these open conversations decline and say, no, thank you? One of the reasons why I ask is because I, I as you know, often have, like you do, students with me. And so this month I have a family medicine resident mm -hmm. and we've gone out to see a whole slew of people over the last weeks. Mm -hmm. She cannot believe how 100% um, of people when asked, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, would you like to know more about mm -hmm where you're at in your illness. Mm -hmm. uh, are you interested in talking more about the future and what things are gonna look like? She's shocked we haven't had one person yeah. say no. And furthermore, we asked, uh, how would you like that information? Do you want it straight up? Or, you know, we always say, do you want it with sugar? No one has <laughs> wanted sugar, not even one scoop of it. Everyone has said, are you kidding me? thank you. I'd like the information straight up. And no one has said no. And she can't believe it. She said, I've never asked patients this before. I've never explored this with patients before. And I just assumed so many people wouldn't want to talk about it, but a hundred percent do. And they're not self-selected. Yeah, indeed. And I think to your point, Sammy, right, that elephant in the room for so many, they're wondering, uh, but how can we create an opening to really explore what they'd like to know, questions about their diagnosis or their treatment or managing side effects or their prognosis or communication mm -hmm. with the people they love, right? So I think when we create that opening, that invitation, my experience is like yours, Sammy, right? People are just, you know, they're very receptive, very responsive, and in fact, really relieved as well. Mm -hmm. Do you think people can move forward when they have any information whether it's uh, the information that they were hoping to get or information they were hoping not to get, but information being power? Mm -hmm. um, so I know that's how I'm hardwired. And so certainly speaking for myself, I know I, you know, it's interesting. I think 
one of the challenges I've seen in healthcare over the last almost 30 years, I've been a part of the system is folks are asked to sign informed consents all the time, right? But there's not that privilege for informed conversations timely again and again, right? So I think it's for me, it's been learning over the years where are folks at and what would they like to know? And the struggle early on for me was when folks would say, you know what, I don't wanna know anything. And, and so for me, I, that, that hardwiring in me is like, well, what about making an informed choice then, right? But that's how I'm, I'm hardwired. So many years ago, when I would meet folks that would say, you know what, I don't wanna know. Uh, of course, that's absolutely respecting where they're at, but more often than not, my experience has been when we create that invitation um, to, to explore again, where they're at, that starting place, what they understand and what they would like to know, you see this empowerment. And I'm not going to say peace because, you know, it's so unique for everybody, people's lived experiences, traumas, all these identities that folks hold and carry, but certainly knowing what to prepare can absolutely, and the vast majority of the thousands of families I've met, alleviate some of those anxieties and speak to some of that uncertainty, just having no idea, right? Mm-hmm. So absolutely, in terms of empowerment, when people better know what to expect, even in general terms, mm-hmm. certainly can give some semblance of peace of mind, right? So they know how to prepare for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you found that you're, when you've been in the community, you are reaching people earlier in their storyline or it's not any different or it's a mixed bag? Well, and your research points this out, right? So clearly, and Sammy, you know it in your work too, right? Is that unfortunately, far too often, palliative care is referred way too late in people's experiences. I think it's still, I always try to demystify it and in fact, explain what I do before I even use the term palliative care. Because once I explain what a palliative approach is, you know, people are really relieved to hear. But all that to say is far too often, people aren't referred until they're close to dying or actively dying. So to your point, Jen, it's a lot of people don't reach out to me until someone's dying and they say the revelation, Sammy, you're speaking to, we've just found out it's not curative or the prognosis is really short. You know, what do we say? How do we say it to those we love? Um, And then just scrambling, rushing, rushing to try and get some questions answered, rushing to have these important conversations, rushing to plan. So I'd say of all the folks I see, probably the vast majority are really facing end of life. Uh, very rarely do I get proactive referrals from families. I mean, certainly I do see a number of people, you know, asking about how do I talk to my partner or kids about the diagnosis, but more often than not, it's truly, unfortunately, not until someone's facing end-of-life care and that revelation of, oh my gosh, we've just discovered this is what we're facing, or, you know, someone has lost consciousness, and and now it's like, how do we tell, you know, our, our kids or our parents, because now my partner can't be a part of these conversations anymore, and we feel really ill-prepared. So sadly, the vast majority of what I do is around that, around end of life and trying to have those conversations because people are referred far too late. Mm-hmm. Do you find you're using uh, the word palliative a lot, Elizabeth? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I use it and, and I introduce it in a way that I always use it because I feel like if we're going to destigmatize it, we have to use it and explain it and provide education around what we do, right? The broad scope of what we do, kind of introducing the origins of it but how things have evolved. And I think certainly the systemic barriers, um, the lack of training and education and thus awareness within the healthcare system provide additional barriers, right? So if healthcare providers, and this is not a blanket statement, but for so many, if they haven't had that awareness about how proactive we can be following diagnosis, more often than not, folks don't get referred, right? And the number of folks I've prepared to say, I really suggest you, you know, request a referral from your most responsible physician please be prepared. You might get pushback. 
the number of folks I hear back from where they're told just to stay positive and they're not ready for that yet, even though they know their illness is incurable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so a big part of what I do is just trying to identify there's a lot of stigma and misunderstanding around the term. So let me explain what it is so you better understand, right? So you have language around it and how to navigate these conversations with your healthcare team because some will certainly be prepared and open, but mm-hmm. some might not. So how do we speak to that stigma so you feel empowered and prepared? And what about the idea of seeing patients earlier in the disease journey? Are you still meeting them for the first time very late in their illness journey? Well, I mean, I think that integration or that approach, certainly, as you said, you know, I know the phrase that's used a lot is it's everyone's business. Um, and I think it's just for providers themselves, regardless of discipline, to feel empowered, to explore where folks are at, right, from time of diagnosis that I think the way the system has set things up in terms of systematic distinctions or systematic referrals has created these separate lanes, right? And so how do they meet? How do they cross over can create, I mean, certainly a bumpy ride for sure. For, for patients and families, right? And in fact, because I'm in private practice, I don't use the word patient, right? Because I see that as a loss of identity, but I know it's an identifier in the system. Mm-hmm. All that to say is I think it's really exploring all those domains of care are not exclusive and certainly not only important at end of life, but from time of diagnosis. So I think to your point, Sammy, how everybody, you know, hopefully feels empowered to use language that's natural for them, but to explore that whole person care and not mm-hmm. just whole person care, but person and family centered care, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I mean, it's not exclusive to palliative care providers and clinicians. It's certainly an opportunity for any care provider, you know, generalist approaches indeed, right? In the community, how, especially when there's longstanding relationships, how do those folks feel supported to empower those they serve to have mm-hmm. these conversations, explore what their illness experience means for them and how they can offer the most holistic care for those they serve. Elizabeth, I know you also support family members experiencing grief. And so I'm curious, do you find that their grief is different for those who are more aware about palliative care and illness understanding earlier in the illness rather than those who learn about all this very late? So I think grief is another one of those giant elephants in the room when it comes to healthcare, right? Because my experience working at some of these major teaching centers was I saw loss everywhere, right? That had nothing to do with dying or death, but just as a result of say an acute incident or, you know, the diagnosis itself, right? So there's so many losses that people experience following their diagnosis throughout their treatment, whether that's curative or not. I mean, I run support groups for, you know, women following diagnosis of breast cancer, and the loss of identity and intimacy and I mean, employment, income, you know, social connections, all of these losses, even for folks, I mean, body image for folks that their, you know, disease is curative intent, uh, but their grief is an honor to acknowledge in the process. The number of folks I've seen where they've been told, oh, the scars look great, you're good to go. And, you know, the number of women I've spoken to saying, what do you mean they look great? Like I am so far from great and no one has acknowledged. I think the number of people I meet, they talk about feeling broken. And I think it's not explored as loss and grief and what mm-hmm. that means and trying to acknowledge that and give a name to it and trying to understand what it looks like for people. So I think there's so much loss and grief for folks that have nothing to do with dying and death. I mean, the pandemic, I think, has really shone a light on this in a way that most folks hadn't anticipated, right? Acknowledging loss and grief. But I think when we're certainly serving families around life-limiting illness, there's a lot of opportunities for care providers, regardless of discipline, to step forward and offer support, acknowledging certainly what you know the situation means for a given family. Mm-hmm. Even in a given family, how everybody's going to react and respond differently. 
but then exploring supports for those families as well before the diagnosis. Certainly I see kids that are really young where parents will say they have no idea that this, you know, that, that this is, we're looking at end-stage cancer, for instance. And then, you know, when I meet with the kids or teens, I, I mean, even kids as young as three and four, when they say my parents don't think I know, or my grandparents don't think I know, but I know, right? Mm -hmm. So when we can create that opening for people to come together in advance, I mean, they're invaluable conversations and extraordinary connections in the process. So absolutely. And we can identify some of those losses and explore a lot of what I do is, is around legacy work too right? Mm -hmm. Create those invitations. If we don't get involved early enough, right? We miss those opportunities. And what that means for bereavement, right? Is certainly more complex. So I think it's an extraordinary gift that we can offer when we can explore those spaces and places and opportunities with people. It's so true. And we, we talk about um, time being currency, right? Uh, if, if we don't open these um, discussions, and help people understand where they're at in their illness, then we rip them off of precious time where they can be doing things like legacy leaving or just living the way they want to live. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, you know, we talk about when we take a, a, a um, an oath, you know, when we graduate as doctors, how we are supposed to do no harm, mm -hmm. but it is harmful when we rip people off of um, personalizing their journey or not, or making them feel like they have a sudden death instead of an expected death that might happen in six to 12 months. Um, but we don't tell them and wait till two weeks before they're dead. And that's so not fair. I wanted to ask you, Elizabeth, what's the hardest part about what you do? Like, what do you personally find most challenging in the role? Because I can, I can just imagine what you would say about the, um, the beautiful things that you get personally mm -hmm. from the work that you do, but mm -hmm. what, what are the challenges? Uh, so maybe my answer will surprise you. Maybe it won't is I, I truly feel honored at the end of every day to connect with every family I connect with. The only frustrating or challenging part of my job that leaves this sense of moral residue or strain is having to advocate so much to demystify what a palliative approach to care is. I just see it as avoidable suffering for so many I serve, right? So for me, that is the only frustration in my role is when folks don't have those opportunities, or if they do, they're far too late in their diagnosis. So I see a lot of avoidable suffering as a result. Mm -hmm. So that is, I can honestly say the only frustrating part in my role is trying to create opportunities earlier. Um, yeah, and just when you know things could have gone differently if people were connected earlier, had conversations earlier. Mm -hmm. So that would be the one and only truly uh, difficult part of my job. Do you have any favorite stories? <laughs> you must have a million stories my god yeah yeah I think I think that's truly it Sammy right and the work you do too just to think of what an extraordinary honor it is over decades to meet with families um, and I mean working in tertiary care I remember doing legacy work and I remember my colleagues and sadly the Dr. J Children's Grief Center lost their funding so one of the volunteer roles I had was volunteering with Camp Aaron um, mm -hmm. which is the free bereavement camp for kids and teens, which is exciting announcement. Heart House Hospice has just taken on that role. So that's going to continue to run still. But all that to say is I knew my colleagues in the community were doing legacy work with bed sheets, making what they called hugs. So I started doing that in the hospital and I would literally have sometimes 14 family members surrounding someone in the bed 
to make these, you know, it's, it's like making a personalized scarf, tracing your outstretched arms on a bed sheet, and then you cut it out and decorate it with messages and images that just remind you of that person. But all that to say is I've done that with families where they've shared that with their family members across the country or elsewhere, and they've mailed the hugs that they've made to be with their person. But even doing legacy work during the pandemic, I've connected with families across Ontario when their person was dying and we've created legacy projects where just speaking to a, a visiting doc in the community in Toronto not too long ago, he said he walked into the family's room just after we made these hugs with the partner and kids and siblings and parents and their hugs were draped across the body of um, this one uh, family member who had just uh, just died. And he said it was just like walking on hallowed ground just to see this family member supported and surrounded by so much love. So for me to be able to create those openings, and this was a family who had been discharged from hospital and said, we've just found out that we're really looking at very short time together. Um, and we don't know what to say or how to tell the kids, can you help us? And so that was really the culmination of literally three sessions with this family. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just remarkable to see what's possible when we create those openings, right? Wow, it's amazing to me that you both do this critically important work and it's so emotionally laden and then you do it virtually. I mean, it's really amazing to me. You were early out of the gate for um, virtual care and um, telephone support. I think maybe you were even early adopter of social media as well or um, were you ever blogging or did you have a website? Like, I feel like you've been... Um, really admirable with respect to trying to, I'll say market with a small M, but mm -hmm. avail yourself to people, make people aware that you are um, available. Yeah, so I think August, 2015 is when I started with everything. And really? um, a lot of, yeah, and a lot of it was, again, in terms of the virtual clinic or the tele, you know, telehealth I offered, it was because I could see people struggling to get to clinic spaces, right? Or trying to think if they have kids, you know, what were they going to do? Or just the mobility challenges alone. So for my virtual clinic, that was always just, I just knew that was what I was going to offer. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of the social media, I appreciate you said small and because I never profile myself. It's more about what are the resources out there that people can access? How do we demystify what a palliative approach is? Mm -hmm. um, and really try to address that stigma. So that's really what I use it for. Um, is, is just trying to create those openings and trying to demystify or create a better or broader understanding of what's possible and giving families information. I mean, like the point of your podcast, right? Those keys to create those openings. Do you, do you think that um, social work and the work that you do is seen differently by maybe the health system or even patients? Because I, I would imagine you know, they are thinking doctors, machines, medicines, that's what they need. And it sounds like they may not be aware of, you know, some of the, you know, what's really out there and, and what you can offer or, or the field of social work. So what's your sense of how, I don't want to say respected, but how other, um, yeah, has there been progress made in recognizing the value of what other professions can contribute? Um, I mean, I think it's a fabulous question, right? And I think because interprofessionalism is at the heart of what we do in palliative care, I think it's always been part of my hard wiring to see how there's this extraordinary blending and blurring of our roles when we come together. When we're talking about whole person care, we need each other, right? Truly. Um, but I'm really honored. I, I'm on contract faculty with Wilfrid Laurier. So I get to teach bachelor uh, with the bachelor of social work program and the master of social work program. So getting to explore that with social work students, you know, what they understand, what they already do. Many of them are already working in the field. 
creating this broader understanding about what's possible, um, you know, building on their strengths, their tools, I think is a great opportunity to empower future social workers going out there. But I think as well for many, it's sort of that, that stigma of if someone's crying, page a social worker or spiritual care, <laughs> or if farms need to be filled, right? So I think trying to highlight the broad scope, much like many disciplines, right? There's a broad scope of what we offer. And while it's unique for each person's practice, I think it's just trying to, again, try to create a broader understanding of what's possible. What is the demand like for your service now? Are you busy? Um, do you wish you were busier? Are you fighting people off? Like at this point, six years later, after you launched your private practice, mm -hmm. uh, how's it going? Um, so fabulous. Um, I'm not surprised, Elizabeth. Pretty <laughs> extraordinary. Uh, so that is unsolicited uh, feedback, but thank you. Um, I think when I say fabulous, that's not to make light of what I do, but truly to feel honored, to love what I do and to feel honored to connect with the people I connect with, whether that's other clinicians and practitioners in the field who are really passionate about the work that we advocate together for, for care for folks, trying to connect those dots as you both talk about, whether it's having those conversations with families. So in terms of busy, yeah, it's been incredibly busy and the pandemic has just certainly fostered that, that exceptional growth. So um, yeah, we often, I'll, some, some weeks I'm working six days a week uh, with teaching as well, because I, you know, I offer a significant amount of teaching. There's Sundays for, for marking and grading, but uh, yeah, I think my kids can see there's a balance as well though. So I don't want to make it sound like I'm burning the candle at both ends because mm -hmm. Of what I've seen and because of what I've done and you know what you both know so you know all too well and both speak about is I make those moments in that time for the people I love so there's a balance of, of work but certainly those mindful moments of what matters most to me too so to your point yeah I, I could there could certainly be many more of me in my practice but I've mm -hmm. intentionally just kept it just my private practice because that way I can control when I work and when I don't and balance mm -hmm. teaching and clinical practice so yeah, it's, it's my dream come true to have the opportunity to do both and to connect with so many families in the process. You do have such a beautiful, um, nicely rounded out career. You dabble in so many different things, systems advocacy, clinical work, um, you know, all you span all illnesses, all ages, families, patients. Uh, I'm surprised you haven't broadened out into supporting healthcare providers like me. So I, I have worked with the physician health program at the OMA for some time. So I do offer support to care oh. providers as well. Yep. Um, but maybe but you I, could I, send I, me your. But, uh, but I do, I mean, I see providers as well, right? I think all of this is just about exploring suffering and what that means to folks. And, you know, certainly when there's avoidable suffering, I think from a, so as a social justice advocate, that's part mm -hmm. of a big part of my role, but I think certainly I, it's very general. I mean, I think it's just, like I said, that invitation to connect with folks wherever they're at, whatever their experience might be, but it's always centered around life limiting illness, whether they're working in the field or serving someone who is, or caring for someone or living with that diagnosis itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can I just follow up on that? So are you saying, so like, is, is the clinicians who are seeing you, is it that they're facing like moral distress? Like, what is that? What are the things that they're thinking about? You're, you're seeing so, that more? Yeah, so literally everything. So there's that as well, Sian, but there's also folks who are caregiving for their spouse or their child, right, as a care provider uh, for family, but also working in the system. 
So um, professional care providers come forward just struggling with just navigating that journey for themselves as they care for a family member or have cared for a family member. And a lot of it is around grief before someone dies, but after as well. So I think to your point, Sian, it's it could be literally anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, we should ask Elizabeth if there's anything she wants to like shout out to the millions of people that are going to listen to this <laughs> podcast episode. <laughs> oh, shout out. Um, I mean, I, I think often it's just, you know, I think so often, I think one of the biggest things I've seen is I'm sure you both know, right? When someone cries in our presence, the first thing they do is apologize. They just say sorry and they try to shut it down or stuff it in. And I always say to folks, you know, like I absolutely believe we should apologize when we make a mistake or do something wrong, but crying or emotional vulnerability is not something we should ever apologize for. And I know why people do, but I just try to create that space where folks feel safe and supported, kind of those brave spaces. But I think one of the biggest things I try to demystify is what vulnerability is and looks like, right? And that's not weakness. And I know Brene Brown is obviously, you know, <laughs> certainly has risen to extraordinary fame for this very reason is just exploring what vulnerability means to people and how that is a strength, not a weakness and, you know, how people can embrace that vulnerability and use self-compassion as they go forward, whether they're a care provider, regardless of discipline or whether they're a person or a family member facing a life-limiting diagnosis or illness is how do we embrace those human experiences? Um, Kate Bowler just released a book, No Cure for Being Human. Highly recommend that. Um, you know, she lives with advanced cancer, right? So I think it's just embracing that vulnerability, not as weakness, but as a strength and using that as an opportunity to connect with those people they love and focus on what matters most to them in the process. Elizabeth, to give a tissue or not to give a tissue? <laughs> uh, well, it's all, it's all virtual now, so. <laughs> oh, good um, point. The, the thing I do notice is sometimes folks will kind of look around and see there isn't anything nearby. And then you can kind of see they're trying to use like a sleeve. And I just kind of acknowledge like, you know, you can use that sleeve. Like I just try to wherever they're at, read the room or read their nonverbal cues. So I think that's kind of to your point, Sammy, it's just, you know, I'm just trying to read their cues and some, you can see them looking around. And in that case, you know, it would be acknowledging, but if someone is just locked on you and their nose is running and they are locked on you, then I stay right there with them, you know? So yeah, <laughs> just that's follow hard, those cues. That's hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, that's a good answer. Do you have any tips for our listeners of some of your best practices or exercises you do to support patients and families? Actually, I do a lot of exercises around listening and the power of holding space. And I remember reading a quote a long time ago that silence is one of those spaces where you can be still and move at the same time. And when we can create those openings and even just ask folks, whether it's healthcare providers or, you know, volunteers in the field, just, you know, trying to practice that exchange and then hold space and then kind of just sit with it for a bit. And then inevitably when you ask folks after, say you held space for like a minute, they're like, that must've been like seven or 10 minutes, you know, because it just feels excruciating because mm -hmm. I think that willingness is wanting to jump in or fix or offer, right? Mm -hmm. And I think just to hold that space is such a beautiful invitation because then it creates an opening for the person to share or maybe share something they haven't had an opportunity to share before, just be seen. So. Yeah, it's one of those uncomfortable spaces that I think is a beautiful invitation when we can sit with that space and be still, but be moved at the same time. 
I'm just smiling because <laughs> when I don't say anything and I give space, people get so uncomfortable who know me because <laughs> I'm constantly talking. So if in meetings, I don't say anything and I'm just quiet, people start sweating like, oh, she's going to spring or... <laughs> So if you're the kind of person that always talking and then you try to give space to the people who know you, they get freaked out. But yeah, it's so important, isn't it? To uh, It's so powerful too. People just start, when you leave space for people um, and you really try to just be there and not say a word, the next thing that comes out from the person's mouth is so important. If you just wait for it. Yeah. Yeah. It can be remarkable, right? And because healthcare is, you know, I mean, certainly under-resourced for many clinicians, they don't have that space or as much time as they would like. So certainly, you know, in any role, I think how we might be able to just hold that silence or that space a little bit longer just yeah. to see. I mean, certainly that person knows we're focused on them and then just creating that opening just for them to share. Even if it's just, you know, I'm really glad you shared that with me. I know we're running short on time. I'd really like to follow up with you about that. Or if we have more time, how we can use that as an invitation to explore what they've just shared with us. So yeah, silence can be a gift. But to your point, Sammy, appreciating in professional roles in those meetings, it's a different persona than having to be in a clinical space, right? <laughs> so that's fair. <laughs> Elizabeth, thank you so much for, uh, for sharing everything today with us. <laughs> thank you both so much. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com to listen to our first season about the seven keys and to learn more. The podcast is produced and edited by me, Kayla McMillan. Our theme music is Made Pole by Ketza. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.